Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Later in the programme, I'll be talking to a former British Lieutenant Colonel who was Chief Logistics Support for the two-year run-up to the Hong Kong handover 25 years ago. So his job was to ensure that everything British military, both equipment and personnel, had been dismantled, sent back to Britain, sold off in Hong Kong or put to good use here by June the 30th, 1997. But first... A week ago, it was reported that the renowned Hong Kong director and producer Alex Law Kayyum had died in hospital at the age of 69. By his hospital bed was his longtime partner and movie collaborator Mabel Jiang Yun Ting. Together, they have directed and produced beloved movies in Hong Kong, including City of Glass, An Autumn's Tale, and Painted Faces. And in 2010, they won the coveted Crystal Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival the first Hong Kong filmmakers to do so for their 2009 movie Echoes of the Rainbow, which Alex Law directed and Mabel Jung produced. This is a Hong Kong heritage from 2010 with both Alex and Mabel talking about the inspiration behind Echoes of the Rainbow. It looks back at 1960s Hong Kong and is an autobiographical piece about a shoemaker and his wife and two sons, the older one aged 16 and the younger aged 8, which is Alex himself. The brother, who he adored and looked up to, Desmond, died of leukaemia. The movie was set in Wingley Street in Central, which had been at the centre of a plan by the Urban Renewal Authority to revamp the street. The 1950s three-storey tenement buildings provided the perfect backdrop for the movie. And in fact, the URA adjusted its plan, and while the buildings were done up, they were preserved, although much of the community subsequently moved on. Echoes of the Rainbow is really based on uh, my own childhood story. Um, how my father struggled as a shoemaker and how my, you know, happy-go-lucky mother <laughs> tried her best to uh, uh, keep us going. And then, of course, there was my brother, um, Desmond, who, uh, who was like a star student and my idol when I was a kid. <laughs> and, of course, finally, there was me, eight-year-old, very naughty, always running around, <laughs> um, you know, stealing little things here and there. Um, very, very um, disobedient as a kid. Um, and so basically the story revolves around this family. And of course in the background you see Hong Kong in the 60s. How everybody struggled, how everybody sort of kept a very uh, intimate relationship with one another. And uh, did you grow up in a similar tenement building to the ones in Wingley Street? Uh, yeah, actually I, I grew up in a um, shoe store that my, my father built. Uh, he built it himself, uh, sort of illegally, and uh, the whole family stayed there. Um, the, uh, the alley is, is at the entrance of an alleyway. Um, the alley is still there, but now it's become a Finnish uh, a spa or <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. So your, the, sh the shoemaker store has long gone? Yeah, it's long gone. It's, um, the alleyway is still there, empty. And uh, sometimes when I when I pass by, I would stop by, and and, and go in that alley, and and and, and I I always be one uh, be amazed how how narrow it is. It's actually so narrow that I I couldn't believe that my whole family stayed there for so long for until for until I was something like seventeen years old. These days when you're directing or when you're producing, is it quite difficult to find tenement buildings from the 60s and earlier, sort of like post-Second World War? Yes, very difficult. 
it's almost impossible. We were lucky that uh, we found Wingley Street. You know, you, you, you could still have one whole block of old buildings. Um, other than that, we, we were thinking of moving to, um, to Malaysia or to, to uh, Guangzhou uh, to find locations. But then um, uh, uh, Mabel, the producer, decided that it was kind of absurd to, to shoot a movie about Hong Kong and shoot it elsewhere. <laughs> so we decided to, 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 to keep looking until one day we found Wingley Street. Yeah. So would you say it's one of the last streets in Hong Kong that suits filmmaking like that? Yes. Yes, definitely. I mean, you can you can probably see a shop or two here and there, or maybe one single building here and there. But no, for you can't find a whole street. No. Now, when you are actually directing and uh, producing, um, isn't it easier if you just have a studio and a facade rather than the historic building itself? Um, it might be easier, but then uh, on uh, an actual location, you get the the atmosphere you get the uh, the little details that um, that uh, even the best art director cannot imitate cannot reproduce with Wingley Street a set of 12 tenement buildings in fact um, there'd been quite a fight over the past few years to save the street it's still up in the air it's still uh, not quite saved just yet but uh, um, how much do you think that the film Echoes of the Rainbow actually helped to save the street <laughs> I, I can't really claim that uh, we saved the street. I, I can only say that um, it probably add to the add to the uh, uh, discussion, add to people's awareness of the uh, of the lost uh, uh, era of Hong Kong, and um, and I was happy that the government reacted very quickly this time, because I was I was expecting another round of student movements rallies which would probably last for another month or so, and then still it, it wouldn't come to anything. But suddenly, one fine day, the government decided that, okay, we're, we're giving it. So we were really thrilled. We were really amazed. Yeah. When you're producing a film like Echoes of the Rainbow, how do you recreate the ambiance of the 1960s? Um, through a lot of things. First of all, Wingley Street is a great location. Um, the ambience there is just right. Um, there's a gentle wind and the tall trees and the sunlight that comes in time, from time to time. And then the neighborhood, you know, the, the people who still live there, they, they are straight from the 60s. <laughs> they come into the set, they can be extras right away without changing their hairdo or the costumes. They are all, they still live in the 60s. So as soon as we walk into Wingley Street, um, even the actors, they feel that they are traveling back in time. It's like a time machine. And we'll have a breakfast and lunch there on the terrace, and people will come by and talk to us. Um, so it is a great location. It, it really gives the film a lot of uh, the authentic feelings. How do you feel about when you create a film and you say that it's about your childhood, so you're creating a shoemaker and his family, um, and you're creating that yourself about your life, how does that feel when you finally see the final product on screen? I found it, actually at first I found it kind of strange, especially on the first day when um, the whole shoe store was built. I look at it and I said, oh, oh my God, this is where I lived, where I've been living for 17 years. And, um, and then um, as the production grew, uh, 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 went on, um, every day I would 
list uh, I hear dialogues and uh, and stuff that I I heard once um, when I was a kid, and now they come out from the mouths of uh, my beloved actors, and I feel almost sentimental. Sometimes I feel almost sentimental, and sometimes I can't even say cut because I just I would just hope that it would keep going on and on and on. <laughs> That's how I felt. Yeah. At the Berlin Film Festival, what did the judges say about your film? What did they feel was the, were the ingredients that made it a winner? Um, they think it is very touching. Um, they they could all feel the sentiment in the film. Although it is very far away from the people in Germany, they have never experienced Hong Kong in the 60s. But the the kind of uh, relationship, the love between brothers and uh, uh, and parents, and uh, uh, first love between the elder brother and his girlfriend, um, they, can, they, they have all kinds of similar experiences. So even when the, um, you know, the, the boy has been trying to kiss the girl for three times without success, but eventually he managed to kiss her, and they all burst into applause, <laughs> the audience. Um, so you, you, you can feel that uh, you, there are some sentiments that can cross border, uh, um, cross time, uh, without limits. Do you think that recreating 1960s Hong Kong, are people looking back here? Is it, do you think that uh, this is because of the economic downturn last year? Is it because it's 10 years since the handover to China? Why Do you think that Echoes of the Rainbow has somehow hit a nerve in Hong Kong? I think in general, yes, people still remember those days. Those days when we led a simple life, when people were very, very friendly and close to one another. When, when I mean, like when I was a kid, my, my mom didn't really have to prepare a big dinner for us because she would cook a dish or two and then we would have dinner outside our little store. And the whole street, the whole block, would be having dinner together. And then there would be 20 or 30 dishes shared by all the families. That's how, how I grew up and, and when I returned home late or maybe my parents were not home, I didn't even have to worry about the keys because I didn't need a key to get in. <laughs> people didn't use keys. So yeah, I, I, I think people remember those days and somehow uh, people nowadays have uh, 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 long developed a new uh, a way of life, a new way of living and, and we now respect privacy, we now have a lot more toys and computers, but people become more sort of atomized, you know, they, they, they respect privacy, but at the same time, they lose the relationship, the intimacy with, with other people. So, yeah. But do you think you're also <laughs> in danger of sentimentalizing the 1960s? I mean, there was a lot of poverty, there was a lot of hardship. Yeah, yeah, we were poor. We were, we, we were all very poor. Mainly, I mean, 90, 95% of the people were poor. Uh, but then we were happy. We were happy and, and every day I, I went out onto the street, I, I would play on the street. I remember there was a big, big garden outside of our little uh, shoe store. It's a public garden, but I would play there every day. And I would tell, I, I, I just felt like we had such a huge garden in our home <laughs> and it's mine. I call it Alex Garden, you know. <laughs> so which part of Hong Kong did you grow up in? I grew up in Sham uh, Shui Po. Uh, actually, my dad's uh, shoe store was right opposite to um, the Garden Bakery. 
across the the garden, which is still there. But then now it's dangerous to go play in that garden because in the daytime there will be so many traffic, so much traffic. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, that and in the evening, sleazy people will, will appear. <laughs> so that's the you know the the difference. Yeah. Now, where did you grow up in Hong Kong? I grew up in Shang Wan, actually quite near Wingley Street, uh, near Bonham Road, uh, in a street called Hospital Road, um, and it is a very quiet street. Uh, uh, like in Echoes of Rainbow, we can run around the street, even girls uh, felt safe running around. Um, we had a great time. Although, um, as you said, uh, in those days, um, everybody was poor. Uh, poverty, uh, but to children, poverty is not a problem. I think uh, children doesn't really care about money. All they care is whether their parents spend time with them uh, uh, and love them enough. Uh, but uh, back in those days, uh, my mother, uh, almost more than half of the, of the mothers were housewives, so they spent a lot of time with the children. And my father came home every night to teach me how to write. So I was, I had a, you know, a very happy family, a very happy childhood. Uh, what did your father do? He was an accountant. Um, in, in the government, so that was considered a very safe job. Um, that's why my mother wanted me to go into the government too, uh, wearing skirt and high heels, you know, look like a girl, <laughs> instead of running around the streets in jeans and... Uh, Doc Martens, yeah, I noticed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you said that your father was a, a shoemaker, so explain to me a little bit, you know, he bought his leather from, from here in Hong Kong? I, I remember some of the leather um, was imported from America, and those were the most expensive shoes that he made. You know, thirty-two dollars a pair. I remember <laughs> his most expensive shoes. <laughs> the usual ones. I, 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 I believe he imported the leather and the materials from from China, and those were less expensive, like ten ten dollars each, twelve dollars each. You know. So you actually grew up with shoes made by your father. Yeah, yeah, he, he made every single pair of shoes that I went to school with, yeah, and um, I, I had the privilege of designing my own pair of shoes, <laughs> even though I was an eight-year-old kid, I would say, okay, because I remember James Bond was very big back then, Sean Connery, and I said, I want a James Bond pair of shoes, <laughs> he would make them for me, you know, <laughs> with very pointed, uh, uh, pointed shoes, pointed up front and a little bit high-heeled. In the back, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and were all your school peers jealous? Yeah, yeah, they didn't know. They thought I was uh, I was a rich kid, but no, it was just that my father made them for me. <laughs> the late Alex Law and Mabel Jung talking to me there in 2010. Well, there's a lot to do when a place changes sovereignty, and when it came to the 1997 Hong Kong handover, the British military had to clear out personnel, transport, blankets, vacuum cleaners, you name it. Tasked with that job was then Lieutenant Colonel Philip Bell, who talked to me this week from his home in France. Well, basically, I was the chief logistics support as a lieutenant colonel in the headquarters, and I was responsible for logistics of the Navy, the Army and the RAF. Essentially, in a nutshell, what that included is all transportation, ground transportation trucks, staff cars, Land Rovers, whatever. All of the movements of aircraft, ships and containers, petrol, oil and lubricants, i.e. fuel, 
fuel for the vehicles, fuel for the aircraft, etc. The explosive ordnance disposal and the storage of ammunition, all of the catering for the three services, the postal services, BFPO1, uh, responsible for all the postal side, the fire services, we had our own locally recruited army fire service. We also had a local purchase organisation if we needed to go out and buy anything specific. And also for the disposals, because obviously after being there such a long time, we to get rid of things, either send it back to the UK, sell it off, give it away, or just scrap it. Essentially, that's what I did. That's quite a job. Well, no one else wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you've got aircraft, Land Rovers, everything that, that's involved in... So, I mean, is that, from a political or a historical perspective, everything had to be gone by midnight on June the 30th? Yeah, essentially, we gave ourselves that time. But, of course, with the handover, you couldn't actually get everything out by midnight. So we had a defining time of around 2 o'clock in the morning. And I think the last aircraft, if I'm right, took off at about 20 past 2. And that's how it all sort of worked. How many aircraft were there then? These are the RAF, the Royal Air Force. No, no. Well, initially we had a Royal Air Force aircraft bringing things in and taking things out. But on the last day, to use the last day as an example, 99% of our job had been done. We only had to remove a certain amount of kit and the people who were there on the last day, and that was about roughly 500 and something people. So what we did is we went to British Airways and we leased two 747s and we basically loaded them up and flew away. Because, I mean, I'm thinking just with the handover ceremony, there were any number of military bands here. Yeah. What we actually did was the parade immediately moved off the parade square, moved away out to Kai Tak. They were taken to Kai Tak on ferries that we'd hired because we weren't sure if we could get there by road in case it was busy or whatever. So what we did was we hired these ferries and we had two of them. The first ferry took the bulk of the men across to the airport. Uh, there's a little ferry terminal at the old Kai Tak. And the second ferry waited until the handover of Tamar itself. There was a small handover ceremony there as well where we handed over the actual barracks to them. Uh, they marched straight out the gates, straight onto the ferry, with a few other hangers-on, uh, and again, straight across the Kai Tak. So did everybody leave in uniform? Essentially, no. <laughs> they all left public view in uniform. They ah. got across to Kai Tak, uh, and if you remember the weather, it was dreadful mm. weather, so most people were soaking wet. Um, so what they did was they changed out of the wet clothing and the chaps either wore their military tracksuits or their working dress, their normal sort of khaki working dress. And you'd have had all the drums and everything loaded as well? Oh yeah, that was all pre-planned, pre-packed and everything worked. And we had a certain amount of um, fat in the system because we had two aircraft. So we loaded the first aircraft to the absolute gunnels to ensure there was space in the second.
take me back to your own career. So you actually end up doing the chief logistics support, but what were you doing prior to that and when did you first come to Hong Kong? Prior to Hong Kong, I worked in the Ministry of Defence. I was a, a lieutenant colonel there. I went to the Ministry of Defence in 91, worked on options for change, which was, you know, the Soviet bloc fell, therefore there had to be a saving on defence, that type of thing. And I worked on options for change for the reserves. And in the Army's case, that was to reduce the reserves, or the Territorial Army as it's called, down from about 91,000 right the way down to 63,000. And this was because then, there was no more Soviet threat as such, you know, the Eastern Bloc? Well, yes. There, there, there was going to be a peace dividend, mm. uh, or that's what they thought, of course. Mm. Well, there and was for a while. <laughs> for a very short while. And then once that was finished, I then moved into the central staffs, that means the Army, Navy, Air Force, the purple area, and I worked on the reserves for all three services, how they were going to be used in future, etc., etc. Interesting. And then I came to Hong Kong in March 95. So for this specific job? Yeah. In terms of two years prior then, you've been saying about how, they, you know, obviously in the run-up, you know, the various transports are going. But what are you doing two years ahead? Are you already getting rid of stuff at that point? Oh, yes. I mean, we started getting rid of personnel and equipment. Uh, well, mainly personnel, probably three years in advance. And then when we were about two years in advance, we really started thinking seriously about what we were going to do about the equipment. And then it was a matter of just taking it down, the equipment and the manpower. And, you know, units were disbanded or moved back to the UK. Uh, their equipment, that was got rid of. Another department looked after the estates, i.e. the barracks and the married quarters, handed them back, all that type of thing. So it was probably three years out that we started, but really two years was when it became quite intense. Yeah, I mean, just generally, I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, when we're talking about equipment, I mean, everything that's British colonial, really, in terms of, I mean, you're going to have plaques on walls. <laughs> I mean, that's the light end. But, uh, I mean, I was commenting on that on the programme, you know, you'd have had portraits of the Queen, all of the badges, the crests. But what else? I mean, what are we talking about? You're talking about literally everything. To give you an example, some of our transport fleet, we had a lot of these Irvans, these little white minibuses, and we saw the fair proportion, I think about ooh, 100 and something to Zambia. Ah. Uh, we all re you'll remember the British Military Hospital at Kings Park. The building, of course, belonged to the Hong Kong government, but the stuff inside it was ours. So basically we sold that off to Pakistan. Uh, we sold hundreds of vacuum cleaners to somewhere else in Eastern Europe. Um, and basically the, the whole idea was to get value for money for the taxpayer. Now, obviously, some of the stuff we couldn't sell, like weapons. <laughs> so weapons, if the UK wanted them, they were returned to the UK. If they weren't required, they were destroyed in Hong Kong. Oh, interesting, all of these different things. Because, I mean, it's interesting also in this period how some of the... I mean, there's a, at least one shop that I've seen that sprung up and it's, you know, kind of British colonial cutlery sets or, or crockery. It's become quite a thing and people are charging quite a lot of money for it. And you wonder where all the other sets went. <laughs> In personal collections, yeah. maybe. Well, 
Yeah, well, no, um, most of it was sold off. Mm. Not to, we didn't tend to sell to individuals. They were sold to companies who were looking to buy them. You know, like, for instance, things like EP&S, silver, etc. The first option, of course, was to send it back to the UK if the UK wanted or required it. But it, if it wasn't required, it really had to be a high-priority item to make it cost-effective to return it to the UK. So if it wasn't a high-priority and it was not economic to send it back to the UK, it was disposed of locally, either by sale or destruction, one of the two. And how did you sell them? Auction? Um, we employed a civilian company, a UK company, uh, that had been involved in defence sales before and had a track record. Uh, and we employed them to act on our behalf because they obviously had all the contacts worldwide. We were sat in Hong Kong with relatively little manpower, so it actually made sense for them to do it on our behalf. So, I mean, you know, when you're thinking about this chief logistics support, you'd need a massive inventory of all of these items that belonged to the British military? Oh yeah, I mean, the, the military is quite good at keeping records <laughs> and we had masses of stuff, uh, we literally did. And then it was just a matter of collating it in one location, sorting it out, getting someone in to look at it and hopefully someone bidding on it. Because otherwise you were going to get no money for it. And so as I said beforehand, our main purpose was to try and get as much bang for the buck, value for money for the taxpayer. And remember, some of this money that actually uh, we recouped uh, went back to the Hong Kong government as well. Ah, interesting. Yeah, oh right. So, I mean, uh, what belonged to whom? That's, the, that's also the interesting thing. I mean, when you're, uh, when, <laughs> when you're packing up and going, what belongs to Britain and what belongs to Hong Kong? Well, all of the estate, that, by that I mean the barracks, the property, the married quarters, etc. That was all handled by a chap called Lieutenant Colonel Roddy Hine who ran J1, J4, and he had a, a full-time job almost, especially in the latter stages, of handing all that over to the government property agency because that belonged to the Hong Kong government under the Defence Forces Agreement that was signed in, I think, the 70s or the 80s, I can't remember when. The other equipment, um, part of the agreement under this Defence Forces Agreement was that um, the Hong Kong government would pay a fairly high proportion of the cost of the troops being there. So any of the money that we received, a proportion of that then had to be transferred back to the Hong Kong government. It didn't all go into the coffers of the Treasury and back to the UK, <coughs> certainly not. So you were responsible, as a Lieutenant Colonel, it was all British military stuff, or was there also other aspects, you know, equipment belonging to, like, the Hong Kong Civil Service or anything else? No, no, anything for the Hong Kong government was the Hong Kong government's responsibility and it was theirs. All we did was look after the British military infrastructure and the equipment. Everything else was the Hong Kong government's do you know problem, if... dare I say. <laughs> um, do you know if, uh, you know, with the British military stuff, was anything saved? I mean, was the idea to flog it all off or was there an idea to preserve some for posterity? Um, some stuff was saved for posterity. For instance, in Osborne Barracks at the Logistics uh, Support Battalion, they actually had the, the table that Montgomery uh, signed the peace agreement on in 1945. So that went back and remained within the military infrastructure and it's somewhere in the UK now. 
a number of other bits and pieces, regimental uh, pieces went back, but a lot of the other stuff that was Hong Kong-centric, uh, we always asked, did the UK want it or did that regiment or association want it? And if the answer came back yes, it was forwarded back to them. If the answer was no, then I'm afraid it was got rid of in Hong Kong. Because, I mean, the Middlesex Regiment, I'm trying to remember when that was, they took the Tinderaire Stone, didn't they, off a hillside? Yeah. We took a lot of things back, but dare I say there was a lot of stuff left. Now, did you leave in 97 with everybody else? Uh, no. I met my then fiancé in Hong Kong, my now wife, Sean Griffiths, who was at the Peninsula, and for a variety of reasons I decided that it was time to leave the military after 24 years. So I resigned. So my last day of working in the army was the night of the handover and basically once everything was done and once I got to the airport I said my goodbyes to various people, went into the corner, took off my uniform, took all my badges of ranks, my medals, my accoutrements, all that kind of stuff, put them in a polythene bag, rolled up the uniform and threw it in a bin and uh, got into civilian clothes, made my way to the peninsula and boogied the night away. My thanks to Philip Bell, talking there on his work ahead of the Hong Kong handover. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.